All right, with that said, we're going to move into, uh, into Bible study for tonight. Uh, this is our last Wednesday night until January 11th, and that is just because uh, the Christmas holiday, uh, Christmas holiday, New Year holiday season that we're hitting. Uh, and uh, on, on one hand, uh, I can be here, uh, but Wednesday nights actually take a whole lot more people in the room to make them work than just me when it comes to the sound and the screens and the live stream and so uh, we, we want to bless everybody with some, some time off there. So we will resume Wednesday nights on January the 11th. So we've got a three-week break, but hopefully two of those weeks you are uh, engaged in some part of the Christmas season. So uh, just a reminder, okay, there we go. Good. I, I can't see the, the dial clock, so I appreciate the uh, numbers up there. Although I guess choir, y'all don't have choir tonight. You, should, you have a party. Well, you can be late for the party. Jesus is more important than your party. <laughs> So, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, we'll be done. We will be done at 7. Uh, i get you to your party. Uh, let me remind you what we're doing. We are walking through uh, what, what in, 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 in maybe seminary circles we'd call, or if you were to pick up a book, a harmony of the Gospels. Uh, I've called it the life and times of Jesus Christ. But simply put, if you remember, we've got four Gospels in the New Testament. And the Gospels are written, although Luke's is probably the closest to what we think of as a biography, the Gospels are all really more an ancient type of biography where they're focusing on aspects of the person and work of Christ. And they do not, while they present all their accounts accurately and factually, not all of the accounts are put in chronological order in each of the Gospels. And so what we're doing is is looking at if you take all of the information the Gospels give and you put as best we can all of it into a chronological beginning of the life of Christ to his death and resurrection, what do you look at? That's where we're at. And if you remember, we are in what is considered the great Galilean ministry, which is going to be the, uh, such a, a large bulk of what, uh, if you grew up in church and in Sunday school, you will have heard the stories of. And... Uh, yeah, this is good. That's where I want it. And so we are moving into, last week we finished, uh, in that ministry of Galilee, there are three distinct, three distinct periods. And we finished that second period. The first period, you've got Jesus really rising in popularity and in fame. He is teaching. He is preaching. He is healing. And then as you get to the end of that period, you start to see some opposition. As you get into that second period we looked at last week, lots of parables. You begin to see uh, the women that follow Christ. You begin to see things like the quieting of the storm. You begin to see a point where Jesus begins. We hit that year out from the crucifixion. He begins to really invest in his disciples. And the opposition, both from the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, has certainly ramped up. But we also find in this season the opposition that is coming from even the Jews, the common people, as they begin to realize the cost of what it's going to mean to follow Jesus Christ, to take Jesus on his terms. And so we come to the end of, if you remember, we finished last week, the feeding of the, you've got the death of John the Baptist, the, you get the sending out of the 12 disciples, the death of John the Baptist, Jesus finding out the 12 coming back from their mission, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, uh, the, the, I am the bread of life in John. And then Jesus and his disciples are going to travel out of, out of that area in, in keeping away from Herod's grip because Herod is, is both scared by the fact that uh, 
Jesus, who is this Jesus? What is he doing? Has John the Baptist come back from the dead? Almost kind of a Scrooge type moment, if you will. Uh, but Herod also has power, and Jesus is going to stay out of, out of his way. And we're going to, with that, move into the third period. This period as a whole is marked by Jesus ministering actually largely outside of the region of Galilee. So if this is Galilee, this is going to largely be marked by Jesus' ministry up into all of these uh, more northern and Gentile areas. Uh, you're going to see in this time as it's going to begin with Jesus healing uh, the daughter of a, a Syrophoenician woman who has faith. It's, it's going to close with, with Jesus beginning the, 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 uh, to proceed down towards Jerusalem uh, and, and doing so in secret for uh, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to pick up in, uh, go with me, let's go to, to Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. Now again, I want you to remember, as you go to Mark 7, let me just, I'm thinking about it, let me pull out one part from last week. Jesus feeds the 5,000, the next day those, those tens of thousands of people come back to him. Remember that that day finished feeding of the 5,000, and it said that the people wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. Jesus sent the disciples away. He doesn't want them to have any part of that. He passes through their midst, gets out of there because Jesus didn't come to be the king of geopolitical first century Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews, but, but he's coming to usher in a kingdom that's far beyond just a geopolitical first century Israel. And you remember that next day as they crossed to the other side, the, the disciples by boat, Jesus by walking on the water, the crowds come and they begin to press Jesus. And Jesus tells them, you're not here today uh, because you really want truth. You're here because I fed you a good meal yesterday. Uh, this, this, is, this is a very common, if, if you don't understand what this is like, just go, I'll send you, I can send you for a week to do college ministry in College Station, and you will understand what this is like. You're not here today. You, you just want the food we're giving you. Uh, we get it. Um, this is what they're here. And, and in that, Jesus begins like he does. He begins to walk them through and call out what is going on. And of course, you have him ultimately saying, hey, you need to not eat bread that's going to fill your stomach. You need the bread of life that'll fill you for, forever, that will give you life. And of course, he says, I am the bread of life. And, he, and as he moves those, that crowd through the conversation and calls them to, if, you're gonna, if you want me, it means you've got to eat my body and, and drink my blood. He's going to use terms that would be extremely off-putting to them to say, you, there's got to be a complete and total faith identification. You've got to take up the, my cross. You've got you to come to me. And of course, they, they, it says, walk away, which is mind-blowing. Uh, you, you think about if, if, if all of a sudden we showed up Sunday and we had 3,000 people here. One, we, we'd be quickly figuring out a way to do like overflow seating in two and three services. But you'd think about the, and on one hand, you might initially be like, oh, I'm kind of frustrated. I don't get my parking spot. I don't get my seat. But then on the other hand, you're like, holy smokes, there's 3,000 people here. And imagine if I get up and start preaching and preach such a hard word that the next week, none of them come back. <laughs> now, you can just think about how you would judge that. and How would I feel about that? It's exactly what Jesus does, but even bigger. Of course, he turns to the disciples because those Jews don't want to accept and believe in what Jesus is actually offering. 
Of course, he turns to the disciples. Well, are you going to go too? And they say, well, no, Lord, you're, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. And you begin to see this contrast. Even though we know the disciples are going to have some problems as we move closer to the cross, there's a contrast here. Now, the disciples got some problems, but overall, they, and we'll see that even more so tonight, they're going to confess Jesus as the Lord, the Son of the living God. And, and the crowds are going to display an inherent lack of faith in who he is. So on that note, look at Mark, uh, look at Mark, where did I tell you? Mark chapter 7. So it says, Jesus, Jesus got up and, and away from there and went to the region of Tyre. Now you remember Tyre from Old Testament, that's the land of Jezebel. That's the land of Baal, uh, that, that kingdom of the north, the region of Tyre. And when he entered a house, he wanted no one to note of it, but he could not escape notice, which tells you this, the fame of Jesus is international, okay? Tyre is not part of, like, the Jews in Jerusalem aren't, aren't going, our brother's up there in Tyre. Tyre would be a Gentile region. They've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said, and he's obviously alluding to, I'm, I'm here to address the people of Israel. You're a Gentile. I, I'm, she said, yes, but... Even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She demonstrates this persistence and faith that routinely throughout the teaching and life and ministry of Christ, you see him honor. And he said to her, because of this answer, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter, which is just remarkable, by the way, right? Because Jesus doesn't even speak words to cast this demon out. He just says he's, the demon's gone. And going back, she went home. She found the, the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. And, and obviously, this is also recorded in, in Matthew's Word. And so here's, here's what's also remarkable. Here you have a lady who is born, bred, and raised in an area that historically is wicked, filthy paganism. It's the paganism of Baal, of, of Molech, of child sacrifice, all of the false idols and gods that we walked through and saw Israel. She is of this region. She is not someone of, of uh, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not of the covenant. She's not grown up going and sacrificing and all of these things. Yet where the Jews are quick to flee Jesus, she persists even when Jesus seems like he's not going to do it. Whereas in that last period we looked at, Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, and in, and in, and in, and in, and in the previous chapter here in Mark, in Mark chapter 6, he's, he's back there in Nazareth one more time, and it says this. It says this about... Uh, it says this about Nazareth. He, he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a, and a few sick people and healed them. He wondered at their unbelief. His own village, his own people, quite literally, his neighbors, wouldn't believe who he was at all. And here is a Gentile who has no reason to believe him for anything, who is persistent. You, you can fix this. You have power over the demons. 
there's a contrast here driving at uh, the Gentiles, and, 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 and you see key Gentiles throughout doing that. As you move through this in this region, you're next going to see Jesus feeds the 4,000. So it's different than the 5,000. He feeds the 4,000. We see that in Matthew, and we see that in Mark. Uh, after this feeding, some Pharisees are going to make their way. They're going to want a sign. What sign are you going to do for us? And so I'm, I'm going to have you turn here. Uh, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. By the way, that, that, the, the account in Mark about the Syrophoenician woman, listen to what, as you're turning there, listen to what he says in Matthew, Jesus. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. So Jesus heals crowds, feeds the 4,000s, and it says this, he sent the crowds away. Jesus got in the boat and came to the region of uh, uh, Magad- Magadan, and it's somewhere in, in here. Where am I? No, here, here we are, right down. He's going to come back down this way. So he's in and out of Galilee. Um, that should make you feel better if you've got older eyes. I'm 34, got great eyesight, and I can't read any of the names on that thing because those maps are like, who puts it in highlighter red? Um, so Pharisees are going to come up. They're going to test him, and they're going to they're test him, uh, and they're going to ask for a sign. And of course, Jesus is going to say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks out a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, and then he walks away. And so here, again, here's what you've got with the Pharisees coming they already don't believe, but they keep coming. So remember Old Testament Messiah, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the dead will raise. We've seen all of those happen. Hey, Jesus, when are you going to show us a sign? When are you going to show us a miracle that proves you're the Messiah? And he says, no, only a wicked and perverse generation asks for that because you've already been given plenty. And so instead, of course, elsewhere he's going to pack, you'll be given the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Three, three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the earth. You, you'll get one more sign to try to wake you up. That's going to be the fact that you're going to put me to death and I will rise again on the third day. But here's what flows out of this. It's the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And, and look what he says there in verse 5. And the disciples came out to the other side of the sea, and they had forgotten to bring any bread. But Jesus said to them, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. So they, did, they forgot to bring bread. So they're out there on the sea. It's not like there's floating buckies. Uh, they're out there. They got nothing to eat. And he's going to make this statement, and they're all going, oh, man, he's getting on to us because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? You're missing the point. And by the way, if, again, we're just walking through this generally, so we're not trying to dive too deep, but, but if they're actually complaining they don't have anything to eat, I mean, hear the ultimate irony here. You're with the man who just mass-produced out of borderline nothing enough bread for tens of thousands. Like, are you kidding me? It says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, you know the idea that a little leaven, a little bad leaven, it defiles the entire loaf. Well, what's the leaven of the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, it's intentional, willful unbelief. 
It's being confronted over and 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 over with truth and proof that Jesus is who he says he is, he'll do what he says he do, and in a willful, continual unwillingness to believe. Now, obviously, the most direct application of that, as we think of that, is for the person who's lost and doesn't know Christ. But also understand, we as believers know not in a salvific way, not in a way that relates to our salvation and our security in Christ. We're we're already secure in Christ if we're in Christ, but think about how many times, how many times as believers do we continually doubt certain things our Lord has said because of what it will cost us in our life, or because of, because of fear, because of anxiety, because of, and how many times do we have to be confronted with proof that Jesus always backs up his word, yet we willfully won't trust? Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It, we're, we're not uh, we're exempt from that in a salvific way, but we can fall into that without realizing it. So all this is going to take place, and then here's what you're going to have. Look at verse 13 with me. Back in Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now Caesarea Philippi is is the largest, the uh, the, the, uh, northernmost confirmed travel of Jesus. It's possible he might have gone slightly more north. I'll show you that here in a second. Caesarea Philippi, so here's the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is up here, it's 25 miles north. It is firmly in what was Gentile pagan land. In fact, here's, here's what you need about Caesarea Philippi, that Caesarea Philippi in the Old Testament days was a, was a shrine, a place. It's, it's beautiful, by the way. Uh, we went there at the end of December, beginning of January, and the leaves were all sorts of pretty golden colors, and you're down there, kind of the area where they would have likely been. It's, there's this uh, there, there's all these caves and this deep cliff face, this beautiful trickling water. In fact, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies and you or Hobbit and you've seen Rivendell, that was what it felt like. And my friend and I were, you know, here we are in this great place of scripture, and we definitely took a picture with his his our, his college ring, uh, acting like we were hobbits. And anyways, it was great. Uh, but. Here's what you need to know about this place. Part of the reason where we're down and what's on that cliff, there are just there are ruins of all sorts of ancient temples and shrines to pagan gods at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, would have been a, would have been a place of worship for Baal uh, and, and Pan, the, the earth god of of the Canaanites. Uh, it, it became a place of worship. The reason, in fact, the reason it's named Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip is because Philip, one of Herod's sons, renamed it after he built a temple to Caesar Augustus of worshiping Caesar as the sun god. Uh, it was, in fact, it is a place that was known uh, in by some of, possibly by, by the Israelites in the Old Testament, for sure, some of the Old Testament uh, uh, peoples that were in the land. It was a place known as the Gates of the underworld, that that was the seat of the gates of the underworld, or maybe put in another way, the gates of hell. So Jesus takes his disciples into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist. Now remember, at this point, John's dead, so this would be John the Baptist come back to life. Some, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? Now think, again, once remember, every gospel is written differently. So where this falls in Matthew's gospel is different. In Mark's gospel, this is, this is the defining moment of the gospel that it builds up to. And after this, it will be nothing but preparing the disciples for the reality of what this means. But think about this in context of what we're doing. The disciples have been picked. They've been on these various tours. They've, they've been there for the bread of life. Lord, why are we going to go away? You alone have the words. You alone have the words right before this. They're, they're not getting an unbelief. Jesus is testing. Jesus is trying to prepare and disciple. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That's the Greek term for Messiah. You are the anointed one, the chosen one. You are the chosen one from God. And notice what he also says, son of the living God. In a place where they are surrounded by people worshiping lifeless gods. You're the son of the living God. You're not just the son of God. Because there's all sorts of people running around here. There's a temple to Caesar Augustus because he's Caesar claiming to be the son of God. You're the son of the living God. And of course, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And that's massive, by the way, church family. You didn't get there, Simon, because you you and your own power connected all the pieces. God, my Father has been working on you. There's been some help. And by the way, that's true for all of us. You don't come to faith in Christ because you and your depravity connect all the pieces. No, because we're depraved. Who first convicts us? Who starts touching our heart? Who does it just say, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him? We owe even when we were lost and began to seek that seeking to the fact that God has been at work. God has been moving. There's got to be something, which is why we don't just want to see people make intellectual decisions for Jesus. Because human intellect doesn't equal true salvation. You want to see people respond with repentant faith from the heart. Now, that's not without human intellect. It should involve the human intellect. But a human intellect convicted by the Holy Spirit in the truth of the gospel. And of course, here comes what is one of the most controversial statements in the history of the last 2,000 years in, in church history. I say to you that you are, and by the way, this is the first time Jesus, throughout Matthew's gospel, we only hear of him as Peter, but this is the first time Jesus calls him Peter. I, will say, I say to you that you are Peter, you are Petros, which means rock. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, let me give you key distinction here, and i got to watch. Uh, apparently, my father-in-law liked that comment because he just texted amen. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't know what we're talking about. Something else is going on, so just making sure it's not an emergency. Um, there's a lot going on here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist the urge to go too deep because I want to move through this period to close out before we get to the Christmas break. But I was taken aback. This, this is the verse... That is, is, it was one of the main verses at the root of the Protestant and Catholic schism. The Catholic Church says that when Jesus says upon this rock, he means, see, there's a word play on the Greek word for rock, P 
Peter means rock, Petros. He says, upon this rock, Petra. And that what Jesus is doing is saying, upon Peter, I will build my church. And so that the Roman Catholic Church, the way that proceeds is you follow Peter. Peter has a unique office that's different than every other human being. And he passed down that office. He was the first bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope. And he passed down that special apostolic authority to every subsequent Pope. So I was a little taken aback today doing just some, uh, some light reading when I discovered that pulling out my very Protestant, very conservative commentaries, and even the study Bible produced in Lifeway's own translation said that Jesus is talking about Peter as the rock of the church. Now there's, and I'm not trying to diss, and those scholars would go on to point where that is still twisted and abused by the Catholics. But I, and so I spent some time on the phone with my, my dad today just talking through it to make sure I'm, I'm not crazy off. Here's, here's, there are some Protestant scholars who will say that this rock, he is talking about Peter, but he's talking about Peter only insofar as Peter will be, and this is true, Peter will be influential in the founding of the church. Well, of course Peter's influential. He's the one who preaches the first sermon that 3,000 people get saved and the church is born. Yes, Peter seemed to have a certain level of leadership among the early apostles. At the same time, if read the book of Acts, Peter's always with John. And Peter, James, and John are always grouped in three. And pretty quick after the church in Jerusalem starts, it's not Peter who's the big deal, it's James, the brother of Jesus. And Peter gets rebuked by Paul for actual racism in the church. And when you read the books of First and Second Peter, he doesn't act like he's the foundation stone for the church. In fact, he's the one who says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And when you begin to move through Paul's writings and Peter's writings, one, uh, the Greek, you can make an argument for that, but you can also make an argument for the fact that when Jesus says this rock in the feminine, what, what is the this he's referring to? It's not referring back to the nickname for Peter. It's referring back to what Peter said about Jesus. The this rock that Jesus is referring to upon which he will build his church is not Peter. Peter's name is meant to be a wordplay because it's meant to reflect the fact Peter confesses the rock. We know from Scripture that the actual rock, the rock in the wilderness, who is it? It's not Peter, it's Jesus. Who's the cornerstone of the church, according to Peter in the Old Testament? Jesus. Who's the foundation no one else can build on? Jesus, according to Paul. It's Jesus. When you get to Revelation, it says there were 12 foundation stones, one for each of the apostles, not one foundation stone, one for Peter. What is that referring to? What is it that the apostles gave us? The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God in written form. So I want to be really clear. When Jesus says upon this rock, yes, you will find in the effort of intellectual integrity here and scholastic honesty, you can find some Protestant scholars who though they would say Jesus does not give Peter any kind of special office and therefore the whole Catholic argument's null and void, they would still say Peter is some unique foundation for what Jesus is saying. I, just to be clear with you, I think based on the rest of Scripture and the grammar, I emphatically reject that. Amen. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus being the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God, that is the rock. And this is interesting, that I will build my church. I will build my church. And notice this. 
and the gates of hell, which we are standing right in front of, will not prevail over my church. My church that when I leave will only be 128 people strong and will be born into a world with no political power, with no political favor. It'll have some wealthy people in it, but it won't be marked by the kind of wealth it's been marked by in the 2,000 years since. My church with a message that is unbelievably hostile and offensive to every sinful human being, but is the only hope for any man, woman, boy, or girl. My church, which will have the deck stacked against it, will not be overcome by the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not overpower it. Now here's just to get further down the rabbit hole here. I hadn't thought about this till a book I read recently that actually was not about this passage, but it, it happened to come up. When I tend to read that passage, and I don't know if you're, if you're not like this, praise God, you're smarter than the pastor. You get a gold star tonight. I tend to read that and think of, oh, the gates of hell will not overpower the church. The forces of evil, the forces of darkness, spiritual or human, they won't overpower the church. That's how I tend to read that. Gates are not offensive. Gates aren't offensive. You don't use gates as a weapon. Gates don't prevail over anybody. Gates are defensive for strongholds that keep people in. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, he's not saying that outside threats will not overcome my church. What he's saying is nothing will stop my church from conquering everything I have called it to conquer. Nothing. Well, that's, that's even better than the other way. The other way says, well, we can stand our ground and not lose it. This way says, church family, we've been given a world of ground to go proclaim the gospel to, and nothing will stop us from carrying out that mission should we stand firm on the rock. That mission to witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit, we will not be stopped in because it's His mission built on the rock that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one true way. And, and I'll take this a step further, that gates of hell. In fact, I, I, I looked at, there's a old pastor who, who, who do really thorough Greek translations of Scripture, and I've got a book that shows at least, he, he did most of the New Testament, his translation, and it was interesting, it caught my eye. He translated gates of hell as the council of the spiritual forces of darkness, which is a way you could understand it, which means even this. When we talk about angels and demons and we talk about there's demonic influence in our world that drives culture, not even they can withstand the onslaught of the church because of what God wants to do. There should be, this should birth, provided we understand the confession properly. Jesus, you are the Christ. Not us, not our church. Not the ministry we do, not the life I want. You, Jesus, who you are as you say you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if we are standing firmly planted on that rock as a church, then whatever gates of hell God wants us storming will not remain unconquered. That ought to bring, especially in today's world for us, a spirit of confidence 
and excitement and passion. Whew. Oh, and it gets even more so, church family. So after this, you're going to see there in Matthew's gospel, uh, of course, you see that discipleship's costly. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself. Oh, by the way, hang on. Let's go. Let's pause. So Jesus, here's this confession of Peter, right? What you're thinking of this, you know? Oh, man, Peter, you just like, you just nailed the toughest question in the book. You nailed the question that thus far nearly every person in the world has failed. What does Paul say? Uh, Don't be proud lest you fall. Look at the next verse in, in, in 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now that you know who I am, I gotta be clear that you understand what I'm here to do because it's not what you're likely thinking. It's what I'm gonna do. He would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Jesus is not hiding any of the plan. Peter took him aside. Which on one hand, maybe, oh, that's kind of nice and unconfrontative. That's even worse. Jesus, come over here for a second. Let me tell you something. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So you talk about going from the mountaintop spiritually to the doghouse. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Your focus that I stay alive, that I set up this kingdom in the here and now. You heard me say it Sunday. If Jesus Jesus came into this world right now and brought ended all our conflicts took away the questionable laws in our government, uh, fixed the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, took all, you know, pulls the Superman comic stun and gets rid of all the nuclear weapons, and all of a sudden we just have this, this nice, joyous, geopolitical world. There is still not peace. We're still going to die. Bodies are still going to decay. Diseases are still going to rot. Except now what we're going to do is we're going to have a world that even more so tells us We've got everything. We should be fulfilled. And we're going to then be confronted with the fact that nothing, none of it really fulfills. Because the core problem in this world that drives every one of those conflicts, geopolitical or in the human heart, is not the conflict between nations or the arguments at the family dinner table. It's sin. And the only way and we're going to look at this Sunday, the only way to fix the problem of sin in the human condition is through a substitutionary death that atones for the rebellion of sin to make the person who receives it reconciled and right and at peace with God. The only one, the eternal one, who can fill the eternal longing, Ecclesiastes 3, set on the hearts of men and women. And so... From Peter saying, don't you dare die, Jesus. We're not going to let that happen. That's no different than Satan's temptation of Jesus bowing, I'll give you all the nations of the world. Now, let me put this in this way for us, church family. I want to... I'm going to try to word this really precisely, but I also ask that you listen very carefully and don't assume something in the, dark, in, in the spaces that I didn't say. I'm going to say what I say and mean what I say, but if I didn't say it, then I didn't say it. 
we have been privileged to live in a country, and I made this statement last week, and I used the word strange, and I don't mean strange in a negative way. I, I don't. I just mean strange in terms of if you look at the whole of human history, what we as believers in the church have experienced in terms of the freedoms we've had in America, it is strange. It is not the norm compared to other nations globally for human history. So don't, don't mistake. Not strange in a bad way. It's just strange. It's, just, it's, it's an outlier. It's different. But there, just like there can be a danger of falling to persecution by, by being fearful of your faith, there can be a danger in, maybe even more so, in prosperity of wedding our faith to this earthly prosperity, of thinking that the health, wealth, and prosperity of our beloved quote-unquote Christian nation America is akin to the kingdom of God, which it's not. And I don't mean that rudely. We can be guilty of seeking man's purposes when our concern is more our comfort as Christians in our country than it is our light as Christians shining pure regardless. Now, don't mistake me, church family. That does not mean we just shut our mouths and don't say anything and just let bad happen. It also means, though, that my driving force in my life is not ultimately the preservation of the republic. It is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Amen. And if I have to ultimately spill my blood, I will spill my blood proclaiming the gospel of Christ for eternity, not the preservation of a comfort in a country that is not God's chosen people. Now, again, do not mishear me. That is in no way referencing whether you spill your blood serving in the military. We, I, I am grateful for our military veterans who have spilled their blood for the freedom of this country. It's not knocking the freedom of our country. Hear me, I am not saying anything negative about any of that. I'm not some angsty 30-something millennial who's trying to rewrite American history. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is all of us, if we're not careful, there, there is an easy line to cross. And I feel it. I don't think my grandfather ever had to wonder if he would live to see his grandkids out of a prison cell. I wonder if I will live to see my grandkids, period, even in a prison cell. Because I know the direction our country is going, and it is scary. And I do pray that it stops. I would love to see a little bit of return of some of the good old freedom of old. But that is also cannot be my full total understanding of what Jesus' purposes are in this world because sometimes, and these disciples, look at what he says in the next verse. If anyone wishes to come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, take up an instrument of shame, mockery, curse, torture, and death, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here is the reality. The call of Christ is not to comfort. The call of Christ is to obedience. And we may be obedient in, in comfort. I pray so. 
And we must be obedient in the absence of comfort in whatever way that comes. So I just want to be clear. And if, if anything I've said, you go, Pastor, I can't believe you said that. Please come talk to me before you post on Facebook. I'd be happy to clarify. <laughs> okay, now here's, whew, all right, we're doing good. Seven o'clock, we got eight minutes, we can do it. <clears throat> Six days later, look at verse, chapter 17, Jesus took him, Peter, and James and John, his brother, and led them on a high mountain by themselves. Now, let me get, this is the transfiguration, okay? So this is the point. I just, just kind of summarize it for you. Jesus is going to take him up on the mountain. All of a sudden, Jesus, they're going to see Jesus. And here's what's crazy. They're going to see Jesus. He's going to be transfigured. He's no longer going to look like the lowly carpenter, blue-collar worker man. He's going to be seen in, in his glory. And they're going to be blown away, terrified. But here's what's also interesting. Jesus is up on this mountain, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah, which there's all sorts of things to ponder from that. One, Peter, James, and John never knew Moses and Elijah, and they didn't live in a day of photographs or paintings, so they had no clue what they looked like. They never had heard their voices, but they knew exactly who they were when they saw them, which would seem to imply, again, imply, when we get to heaven one day, you're going to know everybody is. One, two would also imply that those believers in the Old Testament who, who, yes, were under the law, but believed correctly what they were supposed to because you're not saved by works of the law. You're saved by faith, and the law was supposed to show you that you need faith in what, what God was promising to send, the Messiah was promising to send. It also tells you that those people, they did go to heaven. And you're going to go, well, Elijah didn't die, Pastor. No, but Moses did, and he's there. Also, who, is, who do Moses and Elijah represent? Law and the prophets. What did Jesus come to fulfill and not abolish? The law and the prophets. So here's this incredible transfiguration. Now here's, here's something interesting that, again, Scripture does not say what mountain it happens on. Doesn't say in Scripture, okay? There's a couple of options that have been thrown out. See on this map here, you got Mount Carmel. We know that from Elijah and the, uh, uh, the, the, the fire, prophets of Baal. Mount Tabor, which is where a lot will say this happened. But way up here, said that there may be one place more northern than Caesarea Philippi. They went way up here is Mount Hermon. Now here's, here's an interesting thing, and this is something I was reading lately. So again, I, I'm sharing this more just like, I think this is neat. I'm still processing through it. Give me a little more time. It's something I hadn't, hadn't looked at in depth before, but it is interesting to ponder for a moment. Mount Hermon is unique amongst a lot of those mountains in the region because it is far and away the highest. Now, did you notice Matthew's statement? He doesn't say what mountain, but he does say a high mountain. That something unique about this mountain was it was very high. Mount Hermon, if you go back and do a lot of study of the ancient cultures that inhabited that area as, 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 as Israel was coming in, Mount Harmon was viewed, because mountains were viewed as the throne places for gods. Gods don't live down here in the valleys with the men. They live in the majestic, lofty mightiness of the mountains. And you see that theme even in Scripture, right? Where, is God's, where does God meet Moses? Mount Sinai. Where does God make his throne forever? Mount Zion. And, and, and it's true, right? I mean, 
I, listen, I love the valleys, but man, when you, when you get up there in the mountains and you're up there, there's something majestic being up in the mountains. And I know maybe some of you beach people, you go, oh, but pastor, the beach is great. The beach is great, but there's something majestic about the mountains. Mount Hermon was viewed as the chief, see if I can repeat this right, Baal, remember when we walked through Elijah this summer? Baal's mountain, many believe, was Mount Carmel. That's where they believed Baal was. But Baal was actually, in Canaanite religion, not the top dog god. In terms of, like, acting, yeah. But he actually got his authority to act from a god that they just simply referred to as El, whose court of power which in some of those ancient cultures, and some scholars will speculate, even as Israel viewed pagan religions, his seat of power was kind of viewed as the locus for really all the spiritual forces of darkness, was Mount Hermon. And so if Jesus did, in fact, the transfiguration just further shows who Jesus is. He's not a God. He is God. And all those spiritual forces of darkness, they have nothing on him. But imagine him walking up on Mount Tabor, or sorry, on Mount Harmon, which is known to be the chief seat for the spiritual forces of darkness who run the gates of hell in the eyes of the ancients. And Jesus transfigures and shows himself to be who he exactly is. He is fully the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just something interesting to think about that adds to it. I, I, I was in, in some stuff I've been studying lately. But Jesus transfigures. He sees this. Now again, here's what's remarkable about this. The disciples have seen all of this for a year out from the crucifixion. And every single one of them falls at the crucifixion. Just to jump ahead in the story. I say that to say, church family, it's easy I mean, let's be honest. Have any of this room had an encounter with Jesus remotely close to probably what the glory of the transfiguration was? I personally have. I've had some very intimate mountaintop moments with the Lord. There's been a few of them. I don't know that I'd stack it to the transfiguration of Jesus. If a human being can witness that, and still stumble and fall. That better serve as a warning towards humility for me. Not to live on my mountaintop experiences, but on the word of the one whom I met on the mountaintop, who is faithful in the valley. Lest I stumble. And that's really part of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, take heed lest you stumble. These stories from the Old Testament are there to show us um, lest you fall. And so uh, here's, 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 so th- these are key moments. From here, uh, you'll see the relationship between John the Baptist and Elijah explored in Matthew and Mark. There will be an exorcism of a boy possessed with a demon. We're going to see a continued second prediction of, of the passion of Jesus' crucifixion, a childlike attitude with discipleship. You're going to have, of course, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Familiar with this unmerciful servant there in Matthew 18? Two people forgiven. One's forgiven a small debt. 
The other one is forgiven, or sorry, you've got a servant who's forgiven a debt that a lifetime of work could not earn enough money to repay. He deserves to be thrown in prison and, and lose the rest of his life for it. He goes and he pleads for mercy. And the Lord says, I, I, his, his, his Lord, not Lord like God, but in the parable, his, his, the one he owes the debt to, I, I forgive you. And then that guy has the nerve to go out and ask a guy who owes him $3, you pay me my debt. Oh, you're not going to pay me my debt? And he calls, calls the guard to take him. And of course, he gets thrown in. And, and the question is, well, you know, who, who understands forgiveness more? Well, the one who's, theory is the one who's been forgiven much the one who's been forgiven much. And of course, in there, you've got the question as well. Uh, the questions as well about um, well, how many times should you forgive? Seven times? Seventy times seven. Which is a play on numbers saying you should forgive. If you're going to forgive like Christ, you forgive completely, you forgive fully. And here's the reality as believers, church family, we're going to live in a world We've got to be careful that we do not, as believers, cheapen forgiveness. Someone does something egregiously horrific to you, well, just forgive them. Forgiveness is not acting like it didn't happen. Forgiveness is intentionally, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, knowing exactly full well what happened and choosing to dismiss it as if it did not happen. There's a difference between those two things. One takes into account nothing of the weight of what happened. The other one takes full account of what happened. One is very cheap and really hurts and damages the person we give that cheap answer to. I used to forgive them. One is very costly when you offer that forgiveness. And as humans, we'll have to offer and re-offer in your own heart. So on one hand, we've got to make sure we don't, we don't cheapen what forgiveness is. On the other hand, also understand this. And, and, and there's, to me, there's a real wrestle here when you start to carry this out. We have been, and it's echoed throughout the New Testament, right? Forgive each other as you've been forgiven. Of course, if we don't think, you know, go back to the parable of the, the, the un, un, ungrateful servant. If you don't think you've really been forgiven much, well, you're not going to be really grateful for how you've been forgiven. That's why we've got to see sin clearly, even the sin in our own lives. There is to be, but I, but I understand that as we try to live this out, there's real tensions here. On one hand, I don't know that the forgiveness process can ever be fully realized, short of the offender repenting, right? Because how does God forgive us? He doesn't just forgive us when we don't repent. There's going to be a lot of people that never experience God's forgiveness because they've never repented of their sin. There is an aspect of repentance. Now, how that relates to you and I. There are going to be people who hurt us that may never come and repent. We still have to, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, choose forgiveness in the sense of we are not going to live in bitterness and hold that noose over their head. But there will maybe always be a little bit of this side of heaven with a lack of repentance, a little bit of something that seems uh, remaining in that place. Just talking real life human experience, putting, putting on the ground. There are going to be real hurts you face. And in fact, I think the hardest hurts to work through in the world um, are, are the hurts that come from other Christians. It, for me, at least. I'll, I'll just throw that. It's my experience. 
some of the hurts I have experienced in church to this point in my life caused me far more anger and forced me to go back and look at what forgiveness really is and how I'm going to respond to it than when I think about the nameless face of whoever shot my grandmother to death. Because I understand instinctively that was a lost person completely and totally enslaved in every way to sin and frankly was acting, and again, that doesn't mean I'm trying not to treat what happened. It's also easy for me to say that not knowing who it is. Okay, that's a different deal. That could change if they ever catch him. But I say this to say, there are parts of working through hurt, working through things. We don't want to just say, oh, we'll just act like it didn't happen, because that's not really forgiveness. But we also need to understand this. We are living in a day and time where if, if you breathe wrong in my presence, you've put me through trauma. And I'm not trying to knock. There's a lot of real trauma out there. But we're also in a day and time where pretty much everything that we want to be trauma is trauma too. And we will find any way to justify being angry with one another and bitter with one another because that's the way the self-centeredness of humankind works. And part of our witness in this world is to be one of such a supernatural forgiveness that it is mind-blowing to this world. And if you ever really read stories of martyrs, I think if you think of a historical book like Fox's Book of Martyrs, or if you think more of when I was growing up, the, the uh, uh, Christian music group DC Talk wrote the books Jesus Freaks that were stories of martyrs that were a little more contemporary. Uh, it happened in the last several hundred years. When you read the stories of our brothers and sisters who have given their lives quite literally for Christ, I think of, I think of some of, and I, I can even think of like Michael Sattler, who is an Anabaptist preacher. I know I'm going a little over, but I, I promise I'm wrapping it up. Michael Sattler was an Anabaptist preacher who um, loved the Lord preached the gospel, wanted to see lost people know the freedom and joy and, and peace of Christ. And he was hated, hated by both the Catholics and the Protestants. And when they finally arrested him and condemned him to death, they took searing iron tongs and pulled flesh off his body To try to shut him up from preaching, they cut out his tongue. There's one other thing that was horrifically mutilating they did before they took him and I believe burned him at the stake. And if you read the account, he's not fighting him. He's not hurling curse words at him. With a cut off tongue, in his final moments as they are carting him through the streets, parading him as a warning to anyone who would believe. I love you. I forgive you in the name of Jesus. Hear the words of the gospel. There is to be something radical if we really know the transfigured Jesus about how it impacts the way we forgive. We will be wronged. And there should be something transformative in Christ, how we respond to that wrong. And it's in this period, and even think of Jesus. 
We only know of seven things he said on the cross. What's one of them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I say that to say, I'm not calling us to a cheapened level of forgiveness that acts like nothing happened. But I am saying we all have to, if we've really been forgiven by Christ, we're all going to have to reconcile, especially in this world that is hostile, with what it means to forgive like Christ. So, uh, in this time, that this period of Christ's life is going to come really to a head right, at, right in John chapter 7, when his brothers who don't believe, one of whom would have been James, are going to show up and they're going to say, hey, if this is really who you are, go down to Jerusalem and prove it to everybody. And Jesus is basically, in his humility, going to reject that kind of self-promotion and nonsense. They're going to go down for the Feast of Tabernacles, and then he's going to go down in secret. And that's where we'll pick up next time in the new year. It's when he gets down to Jerusalem, and we begin the final walk of ministry before we get to the week of Passion. So uh, let me pray. Church family, thank you uh, for the joy of... of uh, being here and um, excited for Sunday. I'm going to share with you as well. We're going to we're going to look at a, a neat passage as it relates to both the birth of Christ and uh, and uh, our salvation. And um, I'm also going to share with you as well Sunday just some really exciting ways uh, that God has moved in and through the life of our church this year. Um, there's some neat. Just like I shared with you, appreciate you praying last week for fields of faith. Eleven. Uh, um, made a profession of faith. And I don't remember if I said this Sunday because I wanted to be, I don't know if I knew, and if I did, I was trying to be sensitive and not freak a teenager out. But uh, I don't know if this was one of the ones who gave their life to Christ or just one who was there, but we had a student who showed up on his own because his family didn't go to church, showed up at our church on Sunday because of Fields of Faith. So I just appreciate your prayers last week and ask you to continue to be praying for Matt, for our student team as they follow up with those students. And um, uh, praying for the doors, SCA's opening up. Uh, we are our Christian ISD athletic director was out there. Um, Virginia uh, Vernagine Mott with the school board was out there. School board school board had to approve this to be on the on the field, and we were on the field in the end zone. So uh, I just appreciate your prayers and just know God is moving, and and the gates of hell will not prevail over First Baptist Church Pflugerville, provided we stay standing and walking on the rock that is Christ the Son of the living God. So on that note, let me pray. Father, thank you. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and may we not forget that living part. You are not a God of the past. You are not a God who, who, whose grave is a mausoleum. You are alive forevermore. You are life. And it may, be your, may it be your life that fills our lungs, that fills our cells, Lord. May it be your life that whether we see a return to um, Lord, that there would be a third great awakening in our land, which I know we all long for. God, we do long. I think it's normal for us to long as humans for, for uh, peace and freedom because those things are reflective of you. And, and Paul tells us to pray, what? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. God, we do long for the peace and the freedom that come when people respond to you. For, for, the, for, the, for a, a move of repentance and faith across our nation, across our world. Lord, we long for that. And I believe full well it could happen. But Father, may we not forget whether it does or whether it does not. 
that you are alive. That you are the Christ, Jesus. You are the Son of the living God. And if we ever get to a point where we are facing literal life or death, may we make the confession faithfully. May we confess you as Lord. May we hold true to the line. May we live lives that are marked by love and forgiveness for people that could only come from a transformed heart that is ever being transformed, Holy Spirit, by you who lives within. So Father, strengthen us. Open our eyes. May we not be guilty of getting on a mountaintop and and seeing your glory and then getting down the mountain and forgetting who you are. But Lord, in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, may we not forget it is you who goes before, it is you who goes with. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us, you protect us, you discipline us, you keep us in. You are taking us ever faithfully towards that end goal of bringing us home and then returning. Lord, you are great and good and we could go on and on and we look forward for the, to the day when we will just go on and on. God, and it will be the ultimate of all parties and celebrations with you face to face. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.